This is uh, a, a graph to help us think about the church calendar. What the church calendar is, is the story of Jesus laid out uh, January through December. And uh, during the season of Advent, which begins in December, it's a time in which the church enters into a time of reflection and contemplation, but also waiting thinking through what it means that Jesus, the King, came down into our humanity as a baby, and then what are the implications uh, for them, and what are the implications and truths for us. Uh, and during the season of Christmas tide, which is 12 full days, it doesn't accumulate to the 25th, and then we just stop. We continue celebrating the fact that Jesus has come, and it's a time in which we celebrate Christ's entrance into the world. Epiphany is a time where we look at the places in Scripture that Christ revealed who he was, who the Father was, the intentions, the purpose, the mission of Jesus through um, the mission of God through his son Jesus. Lent, a time in which we are beginning to enter into here in the next couple of weeks, is a time of uh, we focus on the crucifixion and Christ's passion, but it's a time of repentance. Of, it's a time of suffering, it's a time of giving up or attrition, and then Easter comes, we rejoice, we celebrate, we think through that Christ has overcome death, sin, and the grave. What does that mean for us? Now the gospel has changed everything. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come to bring life and to help us to understand who Jesus is. This is a story of Jesus, the greatest story ever told. It's our story. And each year the church helps us enter into that story to think, reflect, and not only just to gaze upon and to muse and to, to you know, like good theology with it, but it's also, it's an invitation, really what it is, friends, is to change. Can, can, why are we here if we're not going to be changing? Like, if we're not going to be transforming, if we're not going to step by step, increment by increment, day after day, being more and more and more like Christ, why are we here? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, who is indeed our rock and redeemer. Uh, be with us now by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Speak truth. Speak truth. Speak truth to our hearts truth a person that has come to dwell and to live amongst us. Help us to understand, to be softened, to Holy Spirit, woo us back to Christ. Remind us of who we are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, friends, I was at a gathering of pastors and elders a couple of weeks ago, 
Presbyterians called it Presbytery. And uh, Gary was there, and he was uh, emceeing us up, up front. And we do a couple of things. Uh, one, we commune with one another. We, we worship. We sing together. We uh, catch up. We do the church business. But, you know, we also go out to eat and hang out and run with the people that, you know, we're most feel most comfortable with. It's kind of like for pastors and elders, it's kind of like our church, you know, that we just glean from and be with each other. And I was with my friends, and this, this phrase kept coming up, and we all kind of chuckled. The gospel changes everything, but people really don't change. And it just kept coming up, and they kept exchanging back and forth. And when it, we heard it, we all started laughing. Because we do know the gospel changes everything, true. But we also know that at times people don't change. Both pastors, kind of joking back and forth, both actually believe in change because we bank on it. Like, I believe in change. The scripture talks about it as transformation. We believe in these things. We've dedicated our lives to this calling that in hopes of, by looking at Jesus and walking in his truths and paths and be, you know, practicing his ways that we would be changed. But we also know the chuckle came from it's hard. It's, it's, it's difficult. And I think even a little deeper than that is that sometimes we don't know how to change. Like sometimes it comes mixed off with a little bit of self-help and, and a self-help book and some things that you know, maybe some yoga and maybe a nice podcast or, you know, maybe moving to a new city or something like this. And then Jesus glazed over it and it doesn't work. But we know change is possible. Change happens around us all the time. Think about the last 50 years, how we as a society has changed. In 1954, one-tenth of one percent of the American workforce used a computer. One-tenth of 1% used a computer. 91 households now have at least one in their home in the US, probably more, and that's not even counting phones. Communication and tech connectivity has changed drastically. In 2000, in the US alone, um, cellular subscriptions were 1.8 million. Now it's almost 500 million in the US alone. The increase of communications and con connectivity has been absolutely profound. You cannot go walk down a city street, you cannot exist in a church without seeing some sort of form of connectivity, iPhone, something. You can't go to a third grade classroom without seeing an iPad or something. It's changed. It's changed. We were sitting at watching Isaac's basketball game last yesterday and phones, whole family, we're not even watching, just Phones, whole families weren't even watching. And I kind of, I had some arrogance. I was like, yeah, we're not watching. Our. Then I looked down, I was like, my kids are on the phone. Doctor, you know, like, my kids were on the phone. We've rethought the way that we think about money. Do you know that there was a time in which we only used cash? That's fascinating. You were paid in cash. You paid bills in cash. Now... There are over, uh, where's my stat here, 300, um, 537 million credit card accounts in the U.S. alone. That's more than almost, that's a lot. It's a lot. 
Uh, labor and management has changed. Productivity has changed. The internet has changed everything. The way that we define families has changed. Gender is changing, and how we define gender, how we consume is changing. It's all changing with humongous implications on our life. We can change, but are we changing for good? And see, the thing is, is many of us feel this tension and we feel the weight. You know it. You feel it right now. You feel the weight of, I know I need to change. I know I want to change. I know that I've changed, but I can't. I'm stuck, and I don't know how to get out of this. Even in a secular age like you and I live in, one that does not believe in original sin, you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, can sit there and say, it's not out there. The problem with the change and the changes that I want to make and the things I want to do is right here. It's right here. If we're honest about it, it's, it's, it's our own hearts and we know it. It's not an external thing, it's internal. And deep down in our hearts, we know it. But we don't believe in original sin any longer. We don't believe that sin's possible. So here's what we do. We blame everyone else. It's politics. It's government. It's taxation without representation. It's schools. It's people. It's all of these other things because we can't sit down long enough and go, wait a second. If I'm honest, it's me. It's actually me. And here's the dichotomy. Here's the tension. You are made with dignity, value, and worth. Absolutely. You're made in the image of God. You're made to reflect with him. That's the tension. You know you're supposed to live one way, but you're feeling it another. And it's hard. It's like things are warped. It's like... You, I can see things clearly right now. Now I can't see anything. It's actually kind of nice looking around here. I can't see much. I don't even know. I'm just, that's a joke. I love seeing your faces, except Larry's. <laughs> I actually went over to him and I was like, I'm going to mess with you today. I did. <laughs> There's something primal, something deep, something physical, something spiritual that longs for change. But we feel stuck in emotional pain, in addictions, in unhealthy patterns, in escapism. We feel stuck in all this stuff. And some of us are screaming, how do I change? Well, see, Paul is speaking to a group of people that have changed by the power of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ has helped their lives. The way they live has changed. They're no longer assimilated to the culture of the Roman society. They're, they're, they're actually, the ways that they're living is causing persecution. They've rethought how they define themselves. They're no longer Roman citizens. They are citizens of another kingdom. And this is... This letter is spoken by somebody and written to, from somebody that himself has had radical, thorough change. Paul, when I hear what is like, when I hear the words that Grant read just here, uh, just recently, just 
second ago. That is a man's life that has changed. His life was a 180. He, he moved into a life of suffering for, advocating for, pleading for, loving and serving and living amongst a group of people that a few years ago he hated. It's changed. A man that hated the name of Jesus then moved into a deep devotion to him that he would go through anything, imprisonment, beatings, uh, all kinds of things, being bitten by snakes, just anything that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed. He changed from a life of self-improvement and self-actualization to a life of self-denial. He changed from a life that was marked by his self-righteousness and what he was able to do solely to a life dependent upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. He changed from a life of living with, relating to, and identifying with a group of people called the Jews and the Pharisees to leaving that group of people and identifying with and living amongst a group of people that they called dogs. He changed. And the question is, how? Well, the scripture uses the word transformation. In the Greek, the word really means is the same word as metamorphosis. A complete evolution. When you think about transformation and the desire of God for all of us, think from caterpillar to butterfly. It's a total transformation. And he understood that Christ's calling to him, Paul's, Christ's calling to him was pretty simple, but it was hard to walk out. Paul understood some things that you and I need to understand. There's this backstory, this framework that Paul had about when he speaks to these people, when he speaks to the Philippians, when he speaks to the Colossians or the, those in Thessalonica, when he talks to these churches, he had an understanding that first the call of Jesus to all of us is a call to repent and to believe. A call to really change was to repent to believe. How many grew up in the church? Grew up in the church, grew up in the church. When you heard the word repent, what did you hear? 180, right? You go one way, you turn around, go the other way. True. But their lexical range, when I started to begin to understand the Greek, it's kind of fun. When you begin to understand the Greek, the actual language there is to change your mind. To repent is to change your mind. Repentance means, like one writer says, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude in regards to sin and righteousness. A total change. Repentance is reimagining your life from the top down around the ways of Jesus and his teaching. It's, it's redreaming about life and how it can be with Christ at the center. It is learning how to be a new kind of human Truly transformed, truly renewed, completely different. That's why we, we say over and over again, to follow Jesus means to become a new kind of human. And see, Paul understood this. Another thing that Paul understood is that the call of the Christian and to live the Christian life is to love the Lord God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's this holistic sort of vision that every part of our life, physically, 
uh, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, is learning from God how to rightly live, how to live in, a, in, in, in the right way, in, in the way that we long for, but which oftentimes we, we're, we can't grasp or we don't know how to, to, to do it. And everything, as a Christian and as a follower of Jesus, is in pursuit of this. It's, it's a simple vision, but it's, it, it's love God, love those that are around you. And see, Paul understood this. And so when he began to write these letters to these people, when he began to, one, be transformed himself, he, he would write in places like Romans chapter 12, which is, like, in Romans is what's one of the best books ever written. I didn't know this, but actually law professors use the book of Romans as a case study to how to build an argument. Paul was a genius. And he would basically, 1 through 11 was this case study of why to live for God. And then verse 12 was like, therefore, what do we do with all of this? And Paul says in this place, and he says, therefore, do not be conformed to the image of the world. And we all go, yeah, yeah, Ryan, I've heard that before. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Paul asked a question that you and I need to ask ourselves, of our society, and of our own lives. We've got to ask this question. And Paul says, in order for me to make Romans into Christians, which is what he wanted to do, I first have to understand how Rome makes people into Romans. I first have to understand how Rome makes people, anybody, into a, a Roman. See, cultural transformation it happens all the time to you and I. We wake up in it. We go to sleep in it. It's all around us. Things that are forming and shaping our loves and our desires and our wants and our needs, constantly shaping it. Rome understood this. Rome understood. Paul says the patterns of this world do not be conformed to those patterns. Paul understood that there were patterns that Rome used in order to tell people this is how you're supposed to think. This is what you're supposed to be in order to be Roman. And so Romans, they use story, they use law, they use myths, they use spiritual and cultural practices, they use history and authority and theater and the arts. They use all of these things to push a narrative, to push a narrative out into society, to push a narrative out into Roman culture to say, this is what it means to be like us. And so anybody that transferred or moved into Roman Empire, everything would be conforming them slowly and over time to be Roman. And so Paul rightly understood in order to be transformed, in order to rethink our life with Jesus, we first have to identify the ways that we're being formed by culture and society around us. We have to identify those things. So Paul's starting point, and most anything that you read of Paul, any of his letters, his starting point was identify the ways in which society is forming you. Identify the ways that it's you and I just sometimes wake up and think, well, that's a good idea. Well, where'd that come from? Who told you? Is that the ways of Jesus, or is that the ways of the world forming and shaping your thoughts, desires, will, and emotions? Who's doing it? And see, Paul understood this. 
And so he wanted to identify the way that Romans make people into Rome so that he could say, how can I take Romans and make them a follower of Jesus? How can I take this society and make them to live and think and to operate and to function as a new sort of human being, a new way of living? It's something that you and I seek to do all the time as followers of Jesus. We basically say things like, okay, the American way makes us into Americans. Whatever the American way is. The American way in the South is very different than the American way in the Pacific Northwest where I grew up. It's very different than the American way sometimes where my wife grew up in the Midwest. And it's definitely different than the way that I, where we moved from in the North. But there is an American way. There's a way that you and I are adapted to and formed by a culture and society. And so we have to ask ourselves, is how is Jesus taking an American and forming us into a Christian, follower of Jesus? And how is this world forming our hearts, shapes, minds, strength? And then how can we live in a way that's counter to that, that invites us back into a narrative that of truth, of honesty, of beauty, of true flourishing and longing, which is found in Christ. And see, Paul, this is a huge introduction to get to this. Oh yeah, buckle up. We are going to be here for a while. Just kidding. Just kidding. Some people are new and they're like, gosh, dang it. I wish I had sat closer to the door. Um, Paul invites us to think about change in this passage, I think, in two ways, especially in the letter and definitely throughout all of his writings. One of the ways that he, helps, he they offers us to rethink and how we change is one, truth. The reality of how things really are in the world. Paul knew that he needed to undermine the stories of the culture, the stories that they've been told, and tell them that's not the way things really are. This is how it's really supposed to be. That's not true. That's a lie. Quit believing it. Stop saying that. Don't do that. He needed to undermine that story. He needed to reverse that thinking by saying, you, they've told you this is the picture of the good life and the way it's supposed to be, but I'm telling you, this is the picture of ultimate life with me and how it's ultimately supposed to be because I created you. This is why so many friends of the stories of Jesus don't have a command. You ever notice that? They don't have an application at the end of a story that Jesus tells. It's not like, well, here's five ways to change completely. No. What he does is he offers them another narrative, another way that it's supposed to be. He undermines the stories, the things that they've told and said, this is actually the picture of how it's supposed to be. This is the true reality, the true story. This is how life actually works. For instance, the first shall be last. Is that a command? No. It's truth inviting us into how it's really supposed 
to be. It paints a picture of a different way of being, a different way of living. It shows us about life and how it's supposed to be, that the narratives and the stories that we're telling ourselves, the culture is telling us as lies, that the philosophies will not deliver. The narrative of society is telling us over and over and over again this, and Jesus is coming along and saying, no, I want you to see this. And the aim of truth, the aim of his teaching is to help us to reimagine our life. To go beyond the do's and the don'ts to see a picture of beauty and fulfillment and joy and peace. That's what he does. He says, I want you, I want to undermine the things that you're being told. And I want to give you a picture of beauty in the way you're supposed to be. Jesus does this, Paul does this, Peter does this, James, everybody write that writing in the New Testament does this. This is why Paul in other places says over and over and over and over again, devote yourselves to what? The teaching of the apostles, the truth of the apostles. Over and over again, come back, be remembered, reimagine, rethink, understand. That's why picking up your Bible and reading it and interacting it with it every day is not just a Presbyterian thing. It's not just a Baptist thing. It's not a Methodist thing. It's a Jesus thing. It's a good thing. Because in it, we are reimagining and understanding who we are, how we're supposed to live, what we're called to do, how we can change. So that's number one, truth. Number two is community. Paul is writing to a group of people living together. Bonhoeffer, you know him, we've quoted him, you've read him, he says this about community, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of all of his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this, he had to come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs to uh, belongs in the seclusion of not a cloistered life, but in the thickness of their foes. There is, uh, there is, there is his commission and his work. The kingdom is to be in the mix amongst our enemies, and he who uh, will not suffer this does not want to be in the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be amongst friends. He wants to sense amongst the roses and the lilies, not to lie with bad people, but devote themselves to other things. Okay, what he says, yes, true. I want to pick up on another idea from that. Is what's the difference between community and relationships? See, Paul, I mean, not Paul. Bonhoeffer is talking about something here, is that sometimes living the way of Jesus can invite us into communities and around people that we would not place ourselves all of the time. But that's good for us. So what are the difference between community and relationships? Because there is a difference. Like Aaron and I have a relationship. I picked her. She picked me. She said, yes, I was happy. Ha, I'm a rhyme. I'm a rhymer. That was great. That is relationships. We pick each other. I would like to be in community with you. I would like to be a part of your life because we have similarities. See, community is, is, is goes beyond that. It's not necessarily something that we pick as much as God picked it for us. God picked it, placed it in our life, and invited us into it. 
I don't get to determine whose hearts are awakened by Jesus and who call themselves Christian, but guess what? If you're Christian, me and you are together. And this is much different in our culture here than it was where I grew up. Because I didn't care if you were black, white, Asian. I didn't care if you were liberal or Republican. In places which the church was extremely, cities were extremely unchurched, if you claimed Jesus, I was like, oh, I don't care where you come from. Come on. And we'd enter in relationship with together. But here, where Jesus feels like it's saturated over everything, we still get to pick our, what we want. Well, I want white-collar Jesus. I'm going over there. Well, I want emotional Jesus with people that are more like who I am. Well, I'm going over there. Well, I want intellectual Jesus. So I'm going to go here. The idea of community is people that God places in your life that we don't necessarily get a choice, that are for our good, though. And that's a beautiful thing. Community un- helps us understand that we were not meant to live life alone. The world is too beautiful and too difficult to live isolated. That's why God calls us to a body, and these beautiful things begin to happen when in the context of community. Two things, then we're done. The context of community, the first thing that it does is it exposes us. This is the stuff we don't like. It exposes us. Community brings out what's actually in here. If you live with somebody long enough, you're going to see what's there. We can't hide it. What's on the inside will come out. So you can't hide in community with others. What's on the inside at some point is going to come out. And this is why culture continues to tell us live private. Stay in privacy. Have a private home and a private car with a private life, making private decisions, because that way you and I can continue to live fake, false lives. It keep us in isolation, keep us away from true, authentic community, which will present, prevent us from being conformed and to changing and to facing our shadows and becoming alive. You say, no, keep it quiet, keep it private, don't let anybody know, no longer, no longer, no longer. Because that means that you and I can continue to live fake. I don't want to live fake. I don't want to live in a way that is not who I really am. And I don't mind you seeing who I really am because we're all looking to Jesus anyway. And so community brings out the best and the worst of us. And I'm telling you, Resurrection, we're good at this. We're good at community. That's why some people love it and come, and that's why some people freak out and leave. Because it forces them to look at what's on the inside. It forces them to begin to deal with the shadows, begin to deal with the false self, begin to deal with the things that we want to project for people to see instead of what's actually going on on the inside, screaming for change. It makes people feel uncomfortable, but we're good at it. But here's the other thing that community is so, so good at. It's not, it just exposes us. It encourages us and uplifts us. It builds us up. When we're exposed, we, I experienced it this weekend, when you're, this week, when somebody is exposed and, and they, they've seen everything, it's our chance and our opportunity to go, I see you, I love you. 
and I see that God is doing some amazing things in your life. I see that you're being conformed more and more to him, and I say yes to those things. Keep going. Let's go. That's beautiful. That's good. I say yes to that. How can I help? What can we do? I'm going to be present with you. What an amazing gift. Friends, we talk often about truth, of community, ways in which you and I can practice, that we can change. But here's the reason that we do it. Because it's ultimately for nothing if we don't transform. If we, if we don't change. If you and I's relationships with one another aren't improving, if my wife is not falling more in love with me because I'm being more repentant and merciful and kind, more like Jesus, it's all for nothing. If my relationship with you is based on solely the interest that you have and that I have and things that help us look like, kind of look like one another, it's all for nothing. Like, we need to go deeper. We need to have more. We need to be involved more. We need to look to Jesus. We need to respond to Jesus. We need to follow Jesus. We need to be changed by Jesus in Jesus' name. 